0: If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think, well I got some consolation, I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, cause I know nothing's gonna be alright.
1: Hello, I'm Ellie Mae O'Hagan.
0: Hello, I am Owen Jones.
1: And this is Pod, and we got a complaint from a listener about always joking about how infrequent our podcast <laughs> is. So, ha ha ha, our podcast is infrequent. Yeah, sometimes... We're ta- not going to change for you. Our podcast <laughs> is
0: occasionally very regular and sometimes it's not, and yes. we keep making the same joke every... Well, I can't even say every two weeks, can I? Because that's the whole point inherent in the... It's guilt, it's guilt, it's a... guilt. I'm gonna
1: say it's guilt expressing itself. Anyway, You've got quite a
0: lot of guilt though, haven't you, Ellie?
1: I won well, I'm from a Catholic family, so
0: So Um we'll anyway. To bear. So we have a very, case. very exciting guest to announce.
1: Yep. He's author of several books. Many. And lots of work Um, and an activist. Very, yeah, very involved in protest movements across the world. Internationally renowned voice of the left. (laughs)
0: Indeed. One of, I'd say, at the very vanguard of our international struggle. David Graeber, (laughs) big round of applause, (laughs) unless you're driving as ever.
1: Yeah, (laughs) keep your hands on the wheel. Welcome, David.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, uh, you've got a new book out. I do. Yes. Kick off. Tell us about it. It's got a very
0: profane title.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's called Bullshit Jobs, a theory. Uh, the theory part um, actually wasn't my idea. The publishers added that, but it kind of works. I was a little worried because there's already a book called Assholes, a theory, um, so it seemed like a reference. But, uh, yeah, it's not exactly a theory. It's it's mainly about something that no one really wants to talk about. So I, I called it that just to draw attention uh, to the fact that huge proportions of people are secretly convinced their jobs should not exist and this is a social (laughs) problem that no one discusses so Mm, i wanted to put it on the table in a way you couldn't couldn't ignore yeah
1: and tell us more why um what kind of jobs do you mean
2: all right well I, i i should give some background here myself i come from a i don't come from a professional background. I, I don't come from an academic background. I'm kind of a stranger in this world, and I'm always made to feel like I am, don't really completely belong here. My, my father has actually uh, worked in print shops. My mother was a factory worker um, for much of her life. So, so you know, I'm used to people who actually make things and do things, and a job is something which is by definition useful in some way. It um, might be horrible, but, it, but it's useful. And you know, here I am in academia, and I keep meeting these people, not academics themselves, but the kind of people they marry or hang out with. And you just meet at these academic parties, and you, you ask them, well, you know, what do you do? I'm an anthropologist. Um, they'll say, oh, nothing really. And you think they're being modest. But after a while, you figure out they actually mean this literally. They, they go to do their work, and they don't do anything. They, they, they sit there and they play around and look at cat memes or YouTube rants mm-hmm. or they play Minesweeper and maybe like an hour a day they do their jobs. And people would say this like, well oh, really I work about three hours a week but don't tell my boss. Or, um, or alternately they're in some occupation which they feel shouldn't even really exist. I mean if you talk to most people who are corporate lawyers, I mean maybe the ones on the top will feel they have to justify what they do. Um, a lot of these guys, uh, who you think, like, how do they live with themselves? Well, actually, they can't. They, they really feel kind of awful about their jobs or or, or have, are in this terrible double bind because equally think the whole industry is stupid. A lot of people in PR, advertising, uh, marketing... Uh, a lot of a lot of um, middle management. They're like, I'm supposed to supervise people. They don't need me. They would just do the same thing if I wasn't there. Uh, so I just make up metrics and I cook numbers, and it's just completely meaningless. Um, and I just wondered how, how how many people are there like this? It seems like I meet a lot of them. Is it the circles that I'm in now? I feel like you know I'm an anthropologist here in the world of the professional managerial class. There are these strange exotic creatures? And um, <laughs> could it actually be these people really aren't doing anything at all? Um, And it made a little sense to me because it resonated with me in part because my dad, you know, fought in the Spanish civil war. He was an ambulance driver with the international brigades. They were stationed in Barcelona. And so um, I often say this is how I ended up becoming an anarchist. He wasn't an anarchist for, I think, at the end of his life, he became one. But it's not that he was so much was an anarchist as he didn't think anarchism was crazy because he saw his place, which was run on anarchist principles. It ran fine. And most people, you know, they don't think anarchism is a bad idea. They think it's insane. You know, obviously that wouldn't work. You know, if you just got rid of police and prisons, people would just kill each other. Uh, and, you know, if you if you come from a place where it's not seen as crazy, you know it could work, well, why not be an anarchist? But anyway, he one of the, aside from getting rid of police and prisons, one of the major things that they did was they got rid of white-collar workers. Um, that was their idea of industrial reform, just like hire, you know, fire the guys in the management if you don't shoot them. and. Um, they discovered that in fact, it didn't really make any difference. So those guys aren't really doing anything. And that was back in the thirties. It's gotten way worse since then. Um, So it resonated with me and I thought, okay, maybe these jobs really are useless. Maybe there's millions and millions of people who secretly believe they're doing nothing all day and they're afraid to say so. So I wrote this almost joke article for Strike Magazine saying maybe that's the reason we don't have 15 hour weeks. You know, they were predicting we would. it's like they made up these jobs just to keep us busy to keep us off the streets you know and and orwell suggested that even you know back in the 40s he said well a lot of this useless employment is just fear of the mob they just figure keep them busy or else they'll get get, get themselves in trouble or or rise up against us so so i i i wrote this little piece and and you know, it was kind of a joke. Um, <laughs> and now it's a book. <laughs> yeah, but it went crazy. It just went exploded. It was on the tube, wasn't it? There was like yeah, yeah, that was people, the next people
1: year. People put, put up graffiti and subvertising. Yeah.
2: Um, the, the first thing that happened is it just like kind of went viral. Like, it's actually been translated into 21 different languages by now. It just came out in Persian. Apparently, they have a big oh, wow. problem with bullshit jobs in Iran. You know, wow. You, know, man.
1: you
2: didn't read about that very much. <laughs> no. Um, well, you know, people in the Middle East don't work. You never hear about mm. Actually, during the Arab Spring, I remember this. They, they, they uh, realized that there's all this labour unrest and they were, wanted people to talk about it on TV and they couldn't find any because they realised they have you know, hundreds and hundreds of professors of Islamic studies but nobody who studies labour issues in the Middle East. And It was
0: all like, oh right, Arabs have jobs. Like, I guess they would have to, wouldn't they? Yeah. It's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in this country, do you think part of it is, I mean, it's, I, I found it really interesting when Marx and Engels were at the Communist Manifesto, the biggest <laughs> single group of workers in Britain were actually personal servants at the time mm-hmm. and that was the case until after world war 1 mm-hmm. but then by the 50s at the peak of the industrial age you had obviously a, a massive industrial working class yes. um, and then you had kind of you, you had communities based around without getting roasted into these were very male dominated uh, very yes. you know often these were dirty backbreaking jobs that had terrible mm-hmm. impact on people's health but you you had communities based around mines and mm-hmm. and steelworks and factories and docks and the shift to a service-based sector, mm. you, you don't have communities based around call centres and, and supermarkets. Work is far more precarious. That's right. Uh, they're less backbreaking jobs, but these are often, you know... But they're more alienated. Well, indeed, so like mm-hmm. call centre, you know, it's like the, uh, to, to quote Jerusalem, dark satanic mills, where you get uh, huge numbers of people concentrated in... In, in call centres where, you know, sometimes they have to stick their hands up to go to the toilet. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, do you think that, you know, that shift from, um, you know, deindustrialization, where's where does all that fit into it? That's
2: really interesting. I mean, I think we need to rewrite the history of what happened, because to some degree there was a kind of compromise. You have to remember with industrialisation... Um, Their first instinct was to employ women and children, not Mm -hmm. not adult men. And a lot of these guys had been, you know, in the putting out system, they'd been employing their their wives, uh, children and and servants, because even poor people had even poorer servants back then, um, as their workforce. So suddenly they went from being the boss to being completely unemployed and not even the breadwinner. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that Luddism had a lot to do with that. I mean, there was a... Ludism, just explain Ludism. Yeah. I mean, when people went out and started breaking machines during the Industrial Revolution, to some degree, you know, it was actual protest against terrible working conditions. But to some degree, it was all these, you know, people who had been the male head of household who were just like completely dispossessed, trying to restore some kind of patriarchal authority. At least that was the compromise that was reached. It's like, okay, okay, you know, we'll hire adult males. Um, I know you know, first they wanted to hire people they thought were more docile and, e- and e- easy to control. So so you know these kind of patriarchal mining communities you talk about our industrial communities did exist. Um, although I always point out, and I think this is really important, that there was no point in time in which most working class people were, were, were working in factories. You know if you, look, you know, read Dickens or even time of Marx, you know, there's a lot more boot blacks and dustbin workers and prostitutes and you know nurses and you know people providing services or uh, even then gardeners caretakers um so we we have this odd idea of what work was always about of production and and this shows up in the language that people like marx use um and that's carried over into political economy that work is productive well, you know, most work isn't productive. It's about maintaining and taking care of things, and and I think we get this idea that there was a time when all working class people were factory workers. It's so like caretakers and 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 you know servants and people like that were actually much more
1: common. Mm-hmm. Um, I
2: always say, you know, you may, even a, look at a cup. You you might manufacture a cup once, but you wash it a thousand times. You know, most work is keeping things the same. It's not transforming them. So so in a way now with this shift to what we call the service economy, we actually can see the working class more clearly as to what it really is. It was the most organized elements of the working class were in factories because they were all in one place and they kind of had a chokehold where they could uh, exert a certain influence. Um, So that combined with certain theological notions of creation and production, which I go into in the book, you know, gave us a warped idea of what
0: it was all about. so one of the things you you've written about and you write about is the fact that so going back to say Keynes, who was okay. a, a liberal economist yes um, who he would not be considered radical now but certainly wasn't exactly <laughs> so, indeed he was a <laughs> yeah. member of the he was a member of the liberal party he yeah. wasn't he wasn't a socialist uh, but yeah, a lot of his ideas ended up underpinning i suppose what we call the social democratic consensus after yeah. World War two yes um after the horrors of it, the, talk about the
2: Keynesian bargain. You know if you raise productivity we'll give you a higher wages that kind of thing
0: yeah demand management you know yeah. so you had that, that that basis of you know it was seen in, in in britain and elsewhere the 30s the hungry 30s of laissez-faire economics had caused the great depression and then a genocide the world war and they thought
1: <laughs> thank god we've all learned of yeah. all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah
0: so back then they went do you know what i've kind of kind of done that now I'm kind of uh, <laughs> Had our fun with that one, haven't we? <laughs> so we'll move on, um, and then we and then we made sure we never made that mistake ever again. Um, so, but anyway, <laughs> That's today's
1: podcast goodbye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but Keynes, one of the things he spoke about was mm-hmm. he predicted that by basically now we'd mm-hmm. be working a fourteen-hour week. That with yeah. technology and yeah. progress. Uh, we'd have more and more time for leisure. Has that uh, new no happened? What happened then? We no, it? hours. it's strange, isn't it?
1: We worked the longest hours in Europe.
0: Not in the one country. of the, Maybe not...
1: less than Greece, actually, I think. But yeah. We're
0: yeah. We're not, yeah, we're definitely on the table.
2: <laughs> yeah. And the crazy thing is that, that we could be doing that. I mean, if you look at the kind of jobs that existed in the 30s, well... Yeah, about half of them have been eliminated. Um, you know, the rise of the robots has already happened to well, a certain degree. Well, that's what degree. I was going to ask yeah. you mm-hmm. about the
1: future of bullshit jobs because, you know, they um, there was a report out this week that said that call centre work, which you mentioned earlier, will mm-hmm. probably be eliminated within about 20 years because of automation. What a terrible shame.
2: I mean, I hope so. Um, but then yeah, what I mean,
1: happens to the call centre workers? Well,
2: I mean, this is what I always say. If there's ever been the clearest proof you could ask for that we live in a completely irrational economic system. It's the fact that the prospect of eliminating unpleasant work is a problem. I mean, like, I thought markets were supposed to be efficient. They can't sort this one out. I mean, we need less work. We have less people working less hours. I mean, more people working less hours. um, It shouldn't be hard, but in its act, People act as if it's completely impossible to imagine that we could simply redistribute the necessary work in such a way that we all get 15 hours to do, and otherwise we can relax and do things we actually want to be doing of our time. Um, it shows that that you know this system is not as efficient as they say. Um, yeah, what I would argue is that we've been having technological unemployment, as as Keynes called it, since the 30s. Um, but we just make up imaginary jobs and the fact. where people literally are doing nothing all day the uh, the polls show that 37 to 40 percent of people um actually say if my job didn't exist it would make no difference i contribute nothing significant to the world at all so so imagine we got rid of those jobs and then imagine all the jobs in support of that right so here's an office where they're just doing pure bullshit they're you know some kind of tax dodge or some complex corporate legal thing which um wouldn't be necessary unless, except somebody else has a similar team of lawyers doing similar nonsense. Okay, say say we take all those offices where nobody's really doing anything. Well, you know, somebody in that office has to be cleaning the toilet. Someone has to be watering the plants. Someone has to be doing pest control. So there's all this actual real work, which is done in support of bullshit, and we don't know how much that is. So if we put all that together, and then we talk about the bullshitization of real jobs, like a lot of nurses say, fifty like percent of word,
1: bullshitization. bullshitization.
2: I think that's a technical term that you <laughs> really need to use more. Um, I wrote a little piece called "On the Bullshitization of Academic Life." You know, sort of Uh, My reference to the classic on the misery of student life that came out in 68. Um, Anyway, um, yeah, so you have bullshitization of real work, uh, where nurses say they have to spend half their time filling out forms, So teachers, the same thing. Um, Okay, you eliminate all that. I mean, we could be working 15 hours quite easily. So the question is, why have we made up all these imaginary jobs? It's not like there's some central committee, like, you know, designing the economy. Somehow this sort of just happened. And the best I could come up with is that, well, to some degree it's political. I mean, if the Soviet Union had people doing bullshit jobs, as we all know they did, it was because they had an actual policy of full employment. You know, it was really important to them that everyone should have a job. So they sent out saying, make sure everybody has a job. And they didn't say, make sure it's a job that's useful in some way. So what's going to happen? All right, so I think something similar is happening here. If you think about it, what's the one thing that both the left and the right, mainstream left and right, totally agree on? More jobs. More jobs is always good. Now They have different ideas about how to create them. But uh, you know, some of them say we should create more jobs by redistributing money to consumers so they can buy stuff and manufacturers will hire people. Um, on the other hand, the right wing says trickle down, give more money to rich people, they're job creators. But it's still the same idea, we'll create jobs. So to to a large degree, I think the bullshit jobs come from a shift from one to the other. Now, if you, if you give money to poor people, well, they'll buy food and other things they need. you give money to middle class people, maybe they'll put it in a swimming pool, but it'll still employ people. Um, if you give money to rich people, I mean, how many yachts can they have? They put it in tax havens as
1: they'll well. They'll put it in tax <laughs> havens. Yeah,
2: they just won't do anything with it. But if they say, oh, right, I'm supposed to be a job creator, I have to create some jobs. Well, they can't create manufacturing or commercial jobs if nobody can afford to buy the services or, or the stuff. Um, so what they basically do is they hire flunkies. They hire people who are basically there to make them feel good about themselves and what you see is this kind of empire building. In any large corporation, executives, managers, their status is measured by how many people work under them. So, you know, what's their incentive to get rid of useless people? In fact, they they try to accumulate as many as possible. It's, It's almost as if we're back in the middle ages and these guys are surrounding themselves with feudal retainers. In fact, I'm convinced that, like, half the people working in government are basically there to make poor people feel bad about themselves. Half the people working in private corporations are there to make rich people feel good about themselves.
0: And before, just talking about kind of, yeah, more way forward stuff. um, There was a report by the New Economics Foundation, a think, tank, Uh, a few years ago, which looked at... It was a study into social value of work. Ah, yes. And and it suggested. I used
2: that one actually. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, exactly. So just to explain for listeners, so mm-hmm. it was this idea that hospital cleaners, who are paid relatively mm-hmm. wages, um, are you know for every pound they're paid, they create about seven pounds for the economy. Because yeah. mm-hmm. if uh, we didn't have hospital cleaners, the NHS would be overwhelmed with uh, horrendous diseases, which would not just kill thousands and thousands of more people every year, uh, but would also obviously impose drastic costs in healthcare. And probably the collapse of the entire national health service. Uh, whilst uh, they looked at, for example, at advertising consultants uh, selling stuff like you know food which makes people unhealthy, and they thought that for every pound they were paid, about four pounds oh, of social value was destroyed. destroyed. Yeah. So yeah, go on, d- talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the
2: things I suggested in the original article, and it's been more than confirmed, and not only by the New Economics Foundation, I found some you know, professional economists who are in no way politically. Um, motivated who did an analysis and They said, insofar as we can measure these things, it does seem to be true that the more your work benefits other people, the less they're likely to pay you. There's exceptions, you know, okay, doctors, uh, there's some plumbers who get well paid. Um, There's uh, some working class jobs that are well remunerated, but overall it does. And even if you look at the doctors, actually, I mean, think about the hospital cleaners. I remember seeing a study which says that 80 to 90% of the improvement in health over the past 150 years has not actually been from medicine and, and better pharmaceuticals or better treatment. It's actually from hygiene. Things are cleaner and that's why people are living longer. And if you think about it that way, actually the hospital cleaners are more responsible for positive outcomes than the doctors are. Yeah, look, what are they paid in comparison? Yeah. Um, so even there, it's, it's not as clear as it looks. I mean, at least doctors clearly are doing something useful for the most part. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the fascinating thing to me is not just that that is the case, but that so many people think it's kind of, that's not a problem, or even they think it's right. You know, you'll hear people say, well, teachers, I mean, you know, you don't want people who are just motivated by money to be teaching our children. We shouldn't pay teachers that much that's really strange but but it gets even stranger when there's this kind of resentment of people who actually do useful work when they also demand some kind of reasonable salary, like those transit workers are going on vacation in Rio de Janeiro. That's outrageous. You know why shouldn't mm. they? They're providing I was these. I why I The resentment in <laughs>
1: yeah. London about the tube drivers, kind yeah, of odd yeah. because not only do they do like a very important job, but also they're in the dark all day. Yeah, like, it's not know.
2: fun. Yeah, I, I just think.
1: <laughs> why well, should they go out on the
0: sunny beach now and then? Yeah, yeah. like you'd be a tube
1: <laughs> driver if you think they have that much of a cushy life. You mm. know? Yeah,
0: yeah, um, it's and it's yeah, race to the bottom. Yeah. 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 So
1: I have a. I have a a challenge for you about the okay. book. So, well, about some of the arguments you make. So I read, its it, um, read it? Good, Utopia, no, no, I haven't read this one, but oh, I read yeah. Utopia of Rules. Uh, yeah. Bureaucracy book,
2: yeah. Yeah, so I
1: actually, maybe it's because I used to work for a trade union, but I actually love a bit of bureaucracy. Okay. I like, I'm kind of into bureaucracy. And then my reason for this is because I think that a lot of bureaucracy is bullshit, but I think okay. that um, a lot of it isn't because I think that for a society to sort of function well, we kind of do need to monitor what everybody's doing. So when it comes to things like nurses filling in forms, okay. um, my my mum was a nurse, um, she's retired now, um, and, um, and I think in some ways form filling could be quite useful because it's important to know who's coming in with what, how many patients are in the ward, and to sort of know that on a kind of national scale, so you sort of know where to allocate resources. Sure, and there, there
2: there's information that's useful to have, and and I actually in that book on bureaucracy, I make it quite clear that I'm not saying that in an ideal society there would be none of this. Um, in there is something to be said for impersonal interactions. You know, I always gave the example of, and that's what people like about a money economy. You know, if everything were a gift, then you know, everybody would know everything you're up to. You know. Uh, it's sometimes nice to just check into the library and take out a book without somebody wanting to know why you want to read about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or to buy something without having to, like, you know, so explain why you need it. Um, so, so there's something to be said for all those things. And, and that's the advantage of bureaucracy, it's impersonal. I'm not saying I'm not for information. Um, what I am saying is that those kind of Im- when you combine impersonality and mathematics and violence, it's toxic. And, and that's a theme that comes up in my book on debt as well. You know, it's it's what a debt is is a moral obligation, it's a promise that gets mixed up with mathematics and violence. And that's when it becomes terrible. Uh, so, so I talk about that a little when I talk about scholarship. I mean, scholarship is about simplifying the world, bureaucracy is about simplifying the world. Uh, they're both good things. You know, in order to see things that you don't know are there, you have to ignore 98% of what's going on and make a cartoon out of the remaining 2%. And that's fine, that's how you learn things. That's how you assemble statistical information that can tell you something you would never have thought to know otherwise. If all you're ever going to say is like, well, life is complicated. Well, sure, that's true. But, you know, you're never going to learn anything new. You already know that. Um, so so that's true. What's So there's nothing wrong with schematizing things, simplifying things, tabulating information. It's when you do that and then come up with simple rules that you then back up with guns. That's mm. when it gets scary.
0: Mm. Do you want me to get around a bit? There's there's a book uh, by the wonderful science fiction author Ursula Le Guin. Ah, yes. Uh, about an anarchist society, what's it called again? It it's a called The room? Dispossessed. Oh yeah, The Dispossessed, mm-hmm. is The Dispossessed. But in that, what they do is, the, the work which is seen as kind of lowest prestige, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, I don't know, stuff, I don't know street cleaning. Right, is, 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 the is,
2: dirty jobs, as they The say, dirty
0: the jobs, exactly, skin. are mm-hmm. distributed across the population by yeah. a kind of rotor system, what do you think of that? That was Kropotkin
2: originally suggested that, I think she was coming out of that, because that's always the question they have, who would do the dirty mm-hmm. jobs and kropotkin made the very interesting argument he said look if if everybody had to do co- toilet cleaning if everybody had to do coal mining i bet you anything that coal mining and toilet cleaning robots would be invented within a matter of a year it's true yeah. <laughs> yeah the only reason we have people doing that is because it's actually cheaper to employ people than machines but you know if all the engineers and scientists who would be able to design those robots had to actually clean toilets themselves it would suddenly become a priority, and they would figure out something. Um, so, in a way, it's a way of just marshaling human creativity. But um, I think that, yeah, um, I don't think the dirty job problem is that hard. It's been there's been a million solutions to it over time. Fourier said, "Oh, get kids to do that; they love filth," you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, you know, there's a million possible solutions, but but. That's the thing, human ingenuity. Um, If if all the human ingenuity now being applied to coming up with like very very rapid derivative trading were being applied to problems like that, you know,
0: we'd figure this stuff
2: out in no time.
0: So, one of you know, there's been various books like Inventing the Future, Mm -hmm. um, which suggests you know. Re- reports have suggested there's one study which suggests that 11 million jobs could disappear in the in the next few years because well not in the next few years but over a period of time yeah the next few years here um, in the UK yeah. Um, yeah, ex- in Britain alone and that's because of mechanization of the economy mm-hmm. um, and and the point that this research has made uh, is that many of the work m- many the jobs that could disappear aren't low-skilled or semi-skilled jobs but include middle-class professional jobs as well yeah um, mm-hmm. and and what so inventing the future looks at uh, a universal basic income, a massive reduction uh, in the working week, uh, and to mechanise the economy that we do. Uh, yeah. You know, employ develop technology as a good thing rather than it being seen as you keep talking about yourself, and this is what your work is partly about, of course. Uh, as as a threat, but actually as an opportunity to restructure the economy, mm-hmm. that our subordination to wage labour. Uh, which consumes so much of our life is not a good thing and that we should be liberated to spend more time in leisure. So, I mean, what in terms of this future society, what, Mm -hmm. just sketch out a bit how you see it, kind of what, what we should be doing. I agree with their prescriptions. I mean, the problem
2: with that book is that it's unnecessarily... Dismissive of everybody else, you know. Um, I wanted to love that book, you know, because I agree with its basic premise. But it spent about half the book just trashing everybody like me for not like being exactly down with whatever futuristic policy is. But but I you know I agree shortening the week and 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 redu- a basic income. Would be the best way to handle this sort of thing. The the thing is, how do you create a way to get rid of bullshit jobs that doesn't create more bullshit jobs, or just shift the bullshit jobs from the private sector to the government? You know, so we have endless bureaucracies to assess whether your job is real or not. Those jobs themselves would rapidly become unreal. So, so in, in academia, we sometimes call this the the. Creating committees to discuss the problem of too many committees. Problem <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. having a meeting about a meeting. Yeah, I've exactly. A, a meeting about a meeting
0: about a meeting. We've yeah. yeah. all been in
2: those. <laughs> yeah, and we get that. I mean, in so many. Uh, that is exactly the problem. In so many companies, they say, like you know, we have twice as many managers as workers. You have managers managing managers and managers who manage those managers. And you know, so so w- w- what sort of policy will cut through that and not do that? And and I'm an anarchist. Uh, I I. I don't believe in policies that'll make the government larger and stronger um, as a way of ultimately getting to some place where the opposite will happen. Because you know history shows that's not what happens. These things entrench themselves. So basic income seems the perfect left-wing anti-bureaucratic strategy because not only will it eliminate a lot of bureaucrats, it'll eliminate the really annoying ones. Mm. You know, it'll keep the nice ones in place, but but. You know, the guys who are really the first to go if you have basic income is the guy who's deciding whether you're working hard enough to try to find a job, or the person who's gonna fine you for showing up late to your CV building exercise, or the guy who's gonna be looking to see if you're raising your children well enough or whether you're really using that room for what you say you're using or you're really living with that person, so forth and so on. Those people, you know, well, they'll get basic income too, right, so they can all quit their their bullshit um, job. And a lot of those people feel terrible. One of the things that was really interesting when I was, having people send in testimonies. Have you ever had a pointless or stupid or socially destructive job? Tell me all about it. A lot of people who worked for government, whose jobs were to like, you know, make sure homeless people had three forms of ID or kick them on the streets Mm -hmm. again, they feel terrible. I mean, Mm -hmm. they they don't, you know, if you ask yourself, how do they live with themselves? Often they don't. I mean, they're really depressed. They have a very short period of time, often they quit. Mm -hmm. So, So, you know, those guys can all go off and do something useful with their lives. They can you know, write poetry or form a band or restore antique furniture, go spelunking, I don't care. You know, whatever they're doing is going to be better than what they're doing now. They'll be a lot happier. We'll be happier not to have them. All those people who, um, you know, the entire job is defending benefit people from them, they'll be able to do something useful with their lives. They can, you know, make candles or something or whatever they actually makes them happy. so we'll have a huge reduction in exactly the most toxic aspects. As I was saying, those parts of the government who are basically there to make poor people feel bad about themselves, you know, will go off and get basic income, too. Uh, I think that would be really positive. Um, shortening the working week is a great idea, but it would be hard to see how it would be enforced because so many people are now casualized, uh, doing contract work I mean, actual nine to five jobs that you could easily reduce aren't nearly as many as there used to be and if you did have a reduction a a formal reduction of working hours you know they would start casualizing even more you know like me i'm i'm on a salary in theory i get paid by the month but as a result you know i probably am expected to work 70 hours a week Mm. i mean basically always supposed to be working how would the government reduce that Um, they'd have to create endless committees and, you know, that would turn into even more bullshit jobs. That's also why I'm a little suspicious of the job guarantee. There's a big debate right now between universal basic income where you just give people enough to live on and leave it up to them to decide what they want to do and we'll give everybody a guaranteed job if they want it. Well, I mean, giving everybody a guaranteed job if they want it would be okay if they decide what the job is doing, you know? Mm -hmm. But, But that's fine. And I think guaranteed job would be great on top of basic income. You can't necessarily assume people have the resources to immediately start doing something that they find useful, uh, especially after you know, sort of years and years of enforced social isolation. People don't have the connections and, and habits to know how to start doing things like that. But, you know, if you're saying job guarantee instead of basic income, you're still ultimately saying, I want to have a bureaucracy that um, because I think those guys would know better than you what you should be doing with your life.
1: So. The- I am interested in the idea of universal basic income because I think that it, it whether it's a good thing or not really depends on who's administering it because I because the radical left a lot of the radical yes. left are very much in favor of it. There's
2: left wing and right wing versions. Yeah, yeah, but yeah also yeah. so is the
1: Adam Smith Institute, which yeah. is a which is a neoliberal think tank, and they like it. Milton Friedman was into it. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they think it undermines the state and it undermines the welfare state. They call the negative it, income tax, didn't they? Right.
2: Yeah, they want to use it to undermine social services. And 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 the way I put it is there's two versions, and there's probably more than two versions, but there's two essential poles of this. There's the kind of guys who want to use basic income as a way of ultimately contracting the domain of of unconditionality. You know they'll say well you don't need to have the NHS if you just give people money and they get private health care, right? That's not what I'm endorsing. I'm I'm using uh, universal basic income as a way of expanding the domain of unconditionality. we We all have a right to health, why don't we have a right to enough income to eat? And, and it's not a question of like, am I deserving? You're alive, you're deserving. It's a way of increasing our sense of, of what we're basically entitled to as human beings, what human beings have a right to. Um, and as such, um, you know, it would set off a ripple effect, I think. If you have universal basic income, well, you'd also need to make sure you have careful housing controls. So that would be one area where you would have to maintain some kind of control. Because otherwise, you know, landlords will just soak it all up by doubling the rent so you have to make sure they don't do that um and in a way those things where it would trigger necessary reforms would all be positive ones
0: yeah so uh, bloody neoliberalism so neoliberalism, as i would see it see if we can cram that in 10 minutes um neoliberalism this is a system which has been hegemonic now for a generation or so uh which uh basically rolls back the public sphere in favor of the market and private Mm -hmm. interests and promotes everything from deregulation to privatisation to low taxes on the rich. And today, what we've two big things really. We've had Carillion, uh, which is a private provider. Well, it was of everything from school dinners to roads. Which Turns out to have been something of a scam. A bit of a scam, to say the least. So a report. Were you
1: surprised? I was surprised. surprised? I, was, I was stunned.
0: Uh, so that that collapsed after they. Not Carillion. Uh, after they pocketed loads and loads of dividends, as the entire company collapsed, mm-hmm. and and the big four accountancy firms who were seconded to the Treasury, Mm. helped draw up our tax laws and tell their clients how to avoid the laws they designed. They kept giving a clean bill of health uh, to Carillion. The shades of 2008. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They also did that in the banking crisis. And what they do is they pocket loads of money to give this kind of badge of respectability. But on the same day today, East Coast has been sort of partially renationalised by the Conservative government Uh, after the current owners said they couldn't afford to keep it running. And what was interesting when it was last renationalised in 2009 is it was this embarrassing success story to neoliberal zealots because it became the most efficient franchise, had the best satisfaction. Mm. When it was nationalised, one of the first things they did was to get rid of the cheaper discount fares, doubling prices for many... Uh, Passengers. So neoliberalism, we could, mm-hmm. you know, everything from the water companies. I mean, which when it
1: was reprivatized, you mean mm-hmm. not when
0: it was. Not oh, when it was reprivatized, sorry, when they no, reprivatised no, no. it. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know, everything from uh, the water companies, which the Financial Times says uh, is a disaster and have suggested it should be renationalized, uh, to the lots, banks.
1: Lots of water companies around the world are getting taken into public hands as well. So is it
0: falling to bits?
2: Yeah, neoliberalism is, is actually, I think, the key moment which most people don't even talk about was about three years ago now the bank of england issued a statement essentially saying the entire economic basis of austerity and neoliberal economics is a lie <laughs> um, they they said well you know all this stuff about there being only so much money about how we control the money supply it's not true banks just make up money you know the, the philosophical basis of austerity and of almost all neoliberal economics is this nonsense and nobody really noticed it at the time but to me what that said was that essentially they made up this stuff that they know isn't true economically for political reasons. And I think this is what neoliberalism is. Neoliberalism is the prioritization of the political over the economic. You know, these guys running the system, they know that like a casualized workforce is not poor, is not more productive. If you like work people to death, if you create total insecurity, they're less innovative, they're less loyal, they're less dedicated. I mean, according to statistics about 15% or maybe 20% of all workers globally, are actively disengaged, which meant they're trying to do their jobs badly. They're so angry at their conditions of work, they are trying to sabotage their, their workplaces. That's a pretty high number. Um, and you know, so, so people know that what they're doing to workers isn't actually economically efficient, but it's really politically effective in stopping worker unrest. You know, If you have people working all the time, casualized, don't know where they're gonna be next year, they're unlikely to form a union or a political party or campaign locally or get involved in activism. So, so I think almost in every case, neoliberalism is a lie. It claims to be about economic efficiency, but what it really is is a political program designed to create total power for the rich um, and. If they have to sacrifice economic advantage, they will, and, and in fact always do. But it's catching up with them. So the Bank of England are the people who actually have to run the system based on this completely bogus economics. And, and and so the bureaucrats are basically saying, No, we're not gonna do this anymore. It's not true. I refuse to go along with this. I might be politically convenient for you, but it doesn't
1: work. So what do we do? What do you think's next for those of us who want to see?
2: Well, I think neoliberalism is, is crumbling. The thing that we should be asking is what's coming next? I think capitalism is crumbling. I think that you know, neoliberalism is the last gasp. Um, when capitalism had run out of economic arguments, they were trying to keep it alive politically. Um, and they were very successful in that regard, but once that collapses, I mean, something is going to replace it. We don't know what. In 50 years, whatever we got ain't gonna be capitalism. The question is going to be, is it going to be something even worse? Some variety of, you know, fascism, which seems to be what they seem to have prepared for us. Uh, In places like China and Russia, they're preparing the way. And a lot of people in the global south are saying, well, maybe that is a viable alternative. It's authoritarian, but it seems to work. Unlike neoliberalism, which is just a disaster. Um, So this seems to me the reason why. You know, saying, oh, we need to accept capitalism. Suddenly, all these guys who would have been anti capitalist 30 years ago, like, I don't know, Thomas Piketty or something, think, no, no, I'm for capitalism. I just want to make it nicer. You know, no, capitalism is going to be gone. What we need to do is think of something different that would be better, because otherwise, we're going to get something different that's going to be worse.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, what's your, what, if you have any thoughts on the rise of the far right across Europe? And, and...
2: I do. Um, actually, I could give a whole analysis of what I ha- think happened with Trump. I haven't written this up, but, you know, if I were if I were Karl Marx and doing a sort of 18th Brumaire analysis of of the last election, I would say that what we're seeing is the divorce of finance and real estate. Now, Trump is a real estate and construction guy and he runs against Hillary, who's basically running as the candidate of finance, but but. There was an alliance between finance and real estate, traditionally. Like, if you go back to the 70s, the 80s, the the finance guys, well, no, I'm sorry, the real estate guys were the only part of the capitalist class that would actually support social democratic redistributive policies because they wanted people to be able to afford a house. You know, they had a product they couldn't sell overseas. So for a long time, they would, like, actually give money to left-wing candidates. Not just, but they would. In the, under Clinton and... That in the 90s and afterwards, there was kind of a deal. They said, oh, we don't have to give them the money. We'll just loan them the money. There was a kind of alliance between the finance guys of between Wall Street and between the real estate interests. And of course, that explodes with the subprime mortgage crisis. And what happens? Immediately, the first really big polarized election is the real estate guy versus the finance person. I mean, uh, Hillary practically ran as the candidate of Goldman Sachs and and Trump claimed to be against that. But what he did is he went back to this very old fashioned, you know, 1930s, 1940s style corporatist uh, sort of appeal. He said, this is what everybody from Keynes to Mussolini was saying at the time, it's like, industry is different than finance. People in industry, employers and employees have a common interest against the investing rentier class. And you could be like Keynes and say, well, get rid of these feudal holdovers and just go straight to industrial capitalism. It's good. Or you could be like Mussolini or Hitler and say, no, they're Jews, kill them all. But either way, you know, there's that idea that employers and employees in manufacturing have a common interest. So you know, Trump trundled that out. Obviously, he did more the fascist than the social democratic version of that. But, you know, he talked about peace and he was actually anti-empire. Because in America, one of the weird things is that finance is essentially the sort of tribute collecting arm of the American military empire. So, you know, you have Hillary saying, I'm going to start a war with Russia. I'm the imperialist. Vote for me. I'm, I'm the finance war person. And, and Trump, the fascist, is running as the peace candidate it's kind of a strange paradox but um you know he won on that basis somebody like looked at the speeches that Trump made and he you know he actually used words like peace and love all the time Hillary never did so he was it was a very very weird appeal um of course, now that he's here, there's a huge struggle between you know are the finance guys going to reestablish themselves or is he going to actually try to move to a well, more line?
0: But he stuffed his, his administration full of Goldman Sachs. Didn't but he? then he
2: told them to kill the trade deal, so you know like which sure, they don't like. It's, it's a real struggle going on inside the administration. But as a war yeah. president, <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: you know, from uh, you know in terms of uh, obviously Syria, but at the moment, what we mm-hmm. see in Palestine, where mm-hmm. he's allied with the, the most right crazies, yeah, exactly, obviously you know, of the but, Israeli government. Uh, and, and dozens of Palestinians have just been just been killed after 56, the, I believe, yeah. the, the relocation of the embassy to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing about Trump, isn't he? He's a, he is a obviously, I mean, a charlatan as well as a nativist, populist and all the rest of it. But in a lot of ways, he is disassembling the empire. I mean, like the, half of the State Department positions still haven't
2: been filled. You know, he's he's throwing the weight to the military side and he's making a lot of militaristic noises but he's also playing a game where he's like taking a lot of resources away from different arms of the... Tra- he's just drawing the He's the defence budget for example. Yes he is. But Massive. he also like ran saying I am going to reindustrialize." and how are you going to do that if you have a Republican Congress other than like doubling the size of the army and building a wall. Those are the only things they're going to let Gee, him do I mean what they've done there isn't it? I mean they've <laughs> yeah. obviously yeah. pushed
0: through the, the, the tax... Bill of Republicans' dreams, massively slashing taxes on the oh, wealthiest yeah. Americans, mm-hmm. on corporate America in particular, because people right. don't don't often realise, but America had one of the highest rates of corporation tax in the Western world, which has now massively been... Oh, you've been back in the 50s? ...reduced. No, now. now I mean, They it, still it, do, yeah. Uh, but now, well, because of Trump's tax so-called mm-hmm. reforms, you, we've got this massive slashing of taxes. So what he's doing is he's proposing both this kind of infrastructure program, mm-hmm. uh, although actually, if we look at the details of that- it's, It was kind of a giveaway as well. It, it, just mean. a giveaway to corporate America, whilst massively slashing taxes on wealthy and corporate America. It's it's a battleground. I
2: mean, the problem he has is that the Congress will let through all the traditional Republican stuff and they stop him on, on the weirdo stuff that he wants to do. He did try to do it. I mean, you gotta give him credit for that. Um, It's also true that the only things he's been successful is in the kind of negative. He hasn't rebuilt certain branches of government, especially those international ones. Um, Yeah, the infrastructure thing he wanted to do, um, they would only let him do it in this absurd way, and he couldn't even end up doing that. Um, But... As I say, there's incredible battles going on within the, the the government over which which policies and which sides will will actually succeed. He is shutting down these trade deals, which is really really astro- extraordinary. I mean, not, Despite the fact that he's filled the administration of Goldman Sachs guys, were are just outraged by that.
1: My impression mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. him um, him canceling NAFTA though was because. Not necessarily because he had an ideological... NAFTA, by the way, for our listeners, is a... North uh, American
2: new, Free Trade uh, um, Agreement. Agreement, yes. agreement
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but my impression that... Well, it, it, it's sort of written in the, the Michael Wolff biography of Trump that the reason that he was um, opposed to NAFTA was not because he had an ideological problem with trade deals, but because he thought it was a bad deal and he could get a better one. Yeah,
2: but he says that about all trade deals.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I do think that is—I think he really does believe his own. But I think bullshit in that I, respect. I mean,
0: on foreign policy, one of the most obviously disturbing kind of figures is is John Bolton, who's oh God, yeah, uh, a an extreme militaristic guy. guy from the Bush era, who is now the National Security Advisor to Donald Trump and is pushing an ex, an increasingly uh, militaristic line in, Iran. And, and, and so yeah. with Iran, you know, at the moment, you know, we have this march to war, possibly with Iran, I mean, John Bolton supports war with Iran, he's written articles saying he supports war with Iran. This is and true. also they've scrapped this nuclear deal which threatens, the, and you know, the last time around, they expanded, helped expand Iranian influence, ironically, by with, through the Iraq war. And the same people who were the architects of that are now partly back in the Trump administration, and the possibilities an even more cataclysmic conflict than yeah. the Iraq
2: war. Well, no, I mean, uh, Iran is, I think, three times the population of Iraq, three times the size. I mean, if they, if Iraq was a disaster, a war with Iran would be a complete catastrophe. Uh, that's, But I think they know that. I, I, to some degree, I think it's smoke and mirrors. We'll see. I mean, they might just go completely crazy. But the real immediate significance of, of ending the Treaty of Iran and trying to reimpose sanctions is it's going to destroy the NATO alliance which is something that Trump did say he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because like France, Germany, they're saying, no, we're not gonna do this. Like, you know, you're just one signatory to a treaty. You can't put sanctions on our uh, corporations for dealing with Iran because we, you'd suddenly changed your mind about a treaty that you signed with them. So, so if they do that, what it's gonna end up happening is it's gonna cause a major realignment economically where Europe is going to realign much more with Russia and Russia also with China. There'll be, you know, America actually will be much more isolated, which is one of the things Trump argued he wanted to do. You know, the the effects in, in, you know, there's always the chance they're gonna blow up the world. They're just gonna have a complete catastrophe. That's true. It's insane brinksmanship. But assuming that doesn't happen, the results are going to be very much a realignment away from the old American imperial model. is something we don't really know what it's going to be.
1: That's a scary note. To yeah, condoms. just uh,
0: <laughs> on that bombshell, quite literally. Um, I, I can't recommend uh, David Graeber enough. please his new book, Bullshit Jobs clearly, but uh, please go and buy that immediately. Drop what you I,
2: I feel that I feel that you should buy ten or eleven of them.
0: Yeah. I think 20, 20 yeah. copies per person. You should give them to your friends <laughs> and throw them at your enemies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, his analysis is 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 so, so unique often in progressive and left-wing thought. Um, and has had a huge influence on movements. He's very very embedded in many movements, which a lot of writers obviously aren't, particularly in the British media. So do get his books and just read his work and follow him on Twitter and just anything else, really.
1: Yeah, all of that, all of the above. And we will be back... Soon,
0: soon with just you know some. Will they be as exciting as David Graeber and insightful? Right. It has been an absolute pleasure. And pleasure we will. Um... Oh, by the way, thanks for the blurb on the back of the book. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about it. I mean, I'm just you know multi-pronged, defensive and support of David Graeber. Uh, <laughs> big fan. So uh, please uh, have you know just enjoy whatever you're doing with your lives with it, unless you're a serial killer.
1: Whenever and wherever you are, especially if you're
0: a serial killer. In my case. <laughs> um, that's a confession live on podcast uh we will be hearing more about that in the news in the days to come lots of love everyone and go out and struggle against injustice bye bye bye, bye. but i don't worry about a thing because i know nothing's going to be all right